Chapter 3 Are You Forgiven? Your Sins Are Forgiven You, 1 John 2.12 Do you hear the question at the beginning of this chapter? It is possible you may not understand its meaning. Perhaps you may think, Whom have I injured? Whom have I defrauded? Whom have I wronged? Whose confidence have I betrayed? What need do I have of forgiveness? It's not an earthly forgiveness I'm asking about, but a heavenly one. I don't ask if you are forgiven in the sight of men, but if you are forgiven in the sight of God. The question I desire to impress on your conscience is simply this Has your soul been forgiven? Give me your attention while I speak to you about the forgiveness of sins. It is never too early to consider this subject. We recently saw a pestilence killing tens of thousands of our countrymen. The strongest were carried off in a few hours. The cleverest physicians found their skills entirely inadequate. We should be thankful to still be alive. We are still alive, but we certainly should take thought. Our turn may come next. Our graves may soon be ready for us. I say again, come, let me speak to you about the forgiveness of sins. Our Need of Forgiveness All people need forgiveness because all people are sinners. He who does not know this knows nothing of Christianity. It is the very ABCs of Christianity that a man should correctly know his place and understand the consequences. We are all great sinners. We were born sinners and we have been sinners all our lives. We take to sin naturally from the very beginning. No child ever needs schooling and education to learn to do wrong. No devil or bad companion ever leads us into such wickedness as our own hearts. Yet, the wages of sin is death. Romans 6.23 We must either be forgiven or lost eternally. We are all guilty sinners in the sight of God. We have broken His holy law. We have disobeyed His precepts. We have not done His will. There's not a commandment in all the ten that does not condemn us. If we have not broken it in deed, we have in word. If we have not broken it in word, we have in thought and imagination, and we have done that continually. Tried by the standard of the fifth chapter of Matthew, there's not one of us that would be acquitted. Yet, it is appointed unto men once to die, but after this the judgment. Hebrews 9.27 we must either be forgiven or perish forever. When I walk through the crowded streets of London, I see hundreds and thousands of whom I know nothing beyond their outward appearance. I see some bent on pleasure and some on business, some who look rich and some who look poor, some rolling in their carriages and some hurrying along on foot. Each has his own object in view. Each has his own aims and ends all hidden from me. But as I look on them, one thing I know for certain is that they are all sinners. There is not a soul among them all that is not guilty before God. Every man and woman in that crowd must die forgiven, or else rise again to be condemned forever at the last day. When I look through the length and breadth of Great Britain, it is the same. From the land's end to the north foreland, from the Isle of Wight to Caithness, from the queen on the throne to the pauper in the workhouse, we are all sinners. 
We have a name among the empires of the earth. We send our ships into every sea and our merchandise into every town in the world. We have bridged the Atlantic with our steamers. We have made night in our cities like day with gas. We have changed England into one great county by railways. We can exchange thought between London and Edinburgh in a few seconds by the electric telegraph. But with all our arts and sciences, with all our machinery and inventions, with all our armies and navies, with all our lawyers and statesmen, we have not altered the natures of our people. In the eye of God, we are still an island full of sinners. When I turn to the map of the world, I must say the same thing. No matter what part of the world I examine, I find men's hearts are everywhere the same and everywhere wicked. Sin is the family disease of all the children of Adam. There has never been a corner of the earth discovered where sin and the devil do not reign. Wide as the differences are between the nations of the earth, they have been found to have one great mark in common. Europe and Asia, Africa and America, Iceland and India, Paris and Beijing, all have the mark of sin. The eye of the Lord looks down on this globe of ours as it rolls around the sun, and sees it covered with corruption and wickedness. What He sees in the moon, the stars, and the planets, I cannot tell. But on the earth I know he sees sin. Psalm fourteen two to three. Perhaps you may not like what I am saying. I have no doubt this language sounds extravagant to some. You think I am going too far, but mark well what I am about to say next, then consider whether or not I have used the words of soberness and truth. What then, I ask, is the life of the best Christian among us all? What is it but one great debt? One long catalogue of shortcomings. What is it but a daily acting out the words of our prayer book? We have left undone those things which we ought to have done, and we have done those things which we ought not to have done. Our faith, how feeble! Our love, how cold! Our works, how few! Our zeal, how small! Our patience, how short lived! Our humility, how threadbare! Our self denial, how dwarfish! Our knowledge, how dim! Our spirituality, how shallow! Our prayers, how formal! Our desires for more grace, how faint! Never did the wisest of men speak more wisely than when he said, There is not a just man upon earth that doeth good and sinneth not. Ecclesiastes 7 20. In many things, says the Apostle James, we offend all. James 3, 2. The best action ever taken by the very best of Christians is, after all, just an imperfect work when tried on its own merits. It is, as Luther says, no better than a splendid sin. It's always more or less defective. It's either wrong in its motive, incomplete in its performance, not done from perfect principles, or not executed in a perfect way. The eyes of men may see no fault in it, but weighed in the balance of God it would be found deficient, and viewed in the light of heaven it would prove full of flaws. It is like the drop of water that seems clear to the naked eye, but placed under a microscope it is discovered to be full of impurity. David's account is literally true. There is none that doeth good, no, not one. 
Psalm 14, 3. And what is the Lord God, whose eyes are on all our ways, and before whom we have to one day give account? Holy, holy, holy is the remarkable expression applied to him by those who are nearest to him. Isaiah 6, 3, Revelation 4, 8. It sounds as if no one word could express the intensity of his holiness. One of his prophets says, Thou art of purer eyes than to behold evil, and canst not look on iniquity. Habakkuk 1, 13. We think of the angels as exalted beings, and far above ourselves, but we are told in Scripture, His angels he charged with folly. Job 4, 18. We admire the moon and stars as glorious and splendid bodies, but we read, Behold even to the moon, and it shineth not. Yea, the stars are not pure in his sight. Job 25, 5. We talk of the heavens as the noblest and purest part of creation, but even of them it is written, The heavens are not clean in his sight. Job 15, 15. Listener, what are any of us but miserable sinners in the sight of such a God as this? Certainly, we ought to all stop thinking proud thoughts about ourselves. We ought to lay our hands on our mouths and say with Abraham, I am but dust and ashes. Genesis 18, 27. With Job, I am vile. Job 40, 4. With Isaiah, we are all as an unclean thing. Isaiah 64, 6. And with John, if we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. 1 John 1, 8. Where is the man or woman in the whole catalogue of the book of life who will ever be able to say more than this, I obtained mercy? 1 Timothy 1, 13. What is the glorious company of the apostles, the admirable fellowship of the prophets, the noble army of martyrs? What are they all but pardoned sinners? We can arrive at only one conclusion. We are all great sinners, and we all need a great forgiveness. Now you see what just cause I have to tell you that to know your need of forgiveness is the first thing in true Christianity. Sin is a burden and must be taken off. Sin is a defilement and must be washed away. Sin is a mighty debt and must be paid. Sin is a mountain standing between us and heaven and must be removed. Happy is that person among us who feels all this. The first step toward heaven is to see clearly that we deserve hell. There is but one choice before us. We must be forgiven or be miserable forever. Many people know so little of the design of Christianity, even though they live in a Christian land. They imagine they are to go to church for no other purpose than to learn their duty and hear morality enforced. They forget that the heathen philosophers could have told them this much. They forget that such men as Plato and Seneca gave instructions that ought to put to shame the Christian liar, the Christian drunkard, and the Christian thief. They have yet to learn that the leading mark of Christianity is the remedy it provides for sin. This is the glory and excellence of the gospel. It meets man as he really is. It takes him as it finds him. 
It goes down to the level to which sin has brought him and offers to raise him up. It tells him of a remedy equal to his disease, a great remedy for a great disease, a great forgiveness for great sinners. I ask you to seriously consider these things if you have not considered them before. It's not a light matter whether you know your soul's needs or not. It is a matter of life and death. Try, I beg you, to become acquainted with your own heart. Sit down and think quietly about what you are in the sight of God. Bring together the thoughts and words and actions of any day in your life and measure them by the measure of God's Word. Judge yourself honestly so that you may not be condemned at the last day. May you find out what you really are. May you learn to pray Job's prayer. Make me to know my transgression and my sin. Job 13:23. May you see this great truth. Until you are forgiven, your Christianity has done nothing for you at all. The way of forgiveness. I ask your particular attention to this point, for none can be more important. Granting for a moment that you want pardon and forgiveness, what should you do? Where will you go? Which way will you turn? Everything hinges on the answer you give to this question. Will you turn to ministers and put your trust in them? They cannot give you pardon, they can only tell you where it's found. They can set before you the bread of life, but you yourself must eat it. They can show you the path of peace, but you yourself must walk into it. The Jewish priest had no power to cleanse the leper. He could only declare him cleansed. The Christian minister has no power to forgive sins. He can only pronounce who those are who are forgiven. Will you turn to sacraments and ordinances and trust in them? They cannot supply you with forgiveness, however diligently you may use them. By sacraments, faith is confirmed and grace is increased in all who rightly use them. But they cannot justify the sinner. They cannot put away transgression. You may go to the Lord's table every Sunday of your life, but unless you look far beyond the sign to the thing signified, you will die in your sins. You may attend a daily service regularly, but if you think you will establish a righteousness of your own by it in the slightest degree, you are only getting further away from God every day. Will you trust in your own works and endeavors, your virtues and your good deeds, your prayers and your charity? They will never buy you an entrance into heaven. They will never pay your debt to God. They are all imperfect in themselves and only increase your guilt. There is no merit or worthiness in them at the very best. The Lord Jesus says, When ye shall have done all those things which are commanded you, say, we are unprofitable servants. Luke 17:10. Will you trust in your own repentance and correction? You're very sorry for the past. You hope to do better in the future. You hope God will be merciful. Oh, if you lean on this, you have nothing beneath you but a broken reed. The judge does not pardon the thief because he is sorry for what he did. Today's sorrow will not wipe off the score of yesterday's sins. An ocean of tears will never cleanse an uneasy conscience and give it peace. Where then must you go for pardon? Where is forgiveness to be found? Listen, and by God's help, 
I will tell you. There is a way both certain and plain, and into that way I desire to guide your feet. That way is simply to trust in the Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of God, as your Savior. It is to cast your soul with all its sins unreservedly on Christ. It is to completely stop depending on your own works and doings, either in whole or in part, and to rest on no other work but Christ's work, no other righteousness but Christ's righteousness, and no other merit but Christ's merit as your ground of hope. If you take this course, you are a pardoned soul. Scripture To Christ, says Peter, give all the prophets witness that through his name whosoever believeth in him shall receive remission of sins. Acts 10.43. Through this man, said Paul at Antioch, is preached unto you the forgiveness of sins, and by him all that believe are justified from all things. Acts 13.38-39. In him, writes Paul to the Colossians, we have redemption through his blood, even the forgiveness of sins. Colossians 1.14. The Lord Jesus Christ, in great love and compassion, has made a full and complete satisfaction for sin by His own death on the cross. There He offered Himself as a sacrifice for us, and allowed the wrath of God, which we deserved, to fall on His own head. For our sins He gave Himself, suffered, and died, the just for the unjust, the innocent for the guilty that He might deliver us from the curse of a broken law and provide a complete pardon for all who are willing to receive it. 1 Peter 3.18 And by so doing, as Isaiah says, He has carried our sins. Isaiah 53.11 As John the Baptist says, He has taken away sin. John 1.29 As Paul says, He has purged and put away sin. Hebrews 1 3, 9, 26. And as Daniel says, he has made an end of sin and finished transgression. Daniel 9, 24. And now the Lord Jesus is sealed and appointed by God the Father to be a prince and a savior, to give remission of sins to all who will take it. Acts 5, 31. The keys of death and hell are put in his hand. Revelation 1, 18. The government of the gate of heaven is laid on his shoulder. He himself is the door, and by him all that enter in will be saved. John 10, 9. Christ has purchased a full forgiveness if you and I are willing to receive it. He has done all, paid all, and suffered all that was needed to reconcile us to God. He has provided a garment of righteousness to clothe us. He has opened a fountain of living waters to cleanse us. He has removed every barrier between us and God the Father, taken every obstacle out of the way, and made a road by which the vilest may return. All things are now ready, and the sinner has only to believe and be saved, to eat and be satisfied, to ask and receive, to wash and be clean. And faith, simple faith, is the only thing required in order that you and I may be forgiven. That we will come to Jesus as sinners with our sins, trust in Him, rest on Him, lean on Him, confide in Him, commit our souls to Him, 
and forsaking all other hope, cling only to Him, this is all and everything that God asks for. If you only do this, you will be saved. Your sins will be found completely pardoned and your transgressions entirely taken away. Every person that so trusts is wholly forgiven and counted perfectly righteous. His sins are completely gone, and his soul is justified in God's sight, however bad and guilty he may have been. Faith, not knowledge, is the only thing required. You may be a poor, uneducated sinner and know little of books, but if you see enough to find the foot of the cross and trust in Jesus for pardon, I guarantee you will not miss heaven. To know Christ is the cornerstone of all religious knowledge. Faith, I say, and not conversion. You may have been walking in the broad way up to the very hour you first hear the gospel, but if in that hearing you are awakened to feel your danger and want to be saved, come to Christ at once and wait for nothing. That very coming is the beginning of conversion. Faith, I repeat, and not holiness. You may feel all full of sin and unworthy to be saved, but don't wait outside the ark until you are better. Come to Christ without delay just as you are. Afterward, you will be holy. I call on you to let nothing move you from this strong ground. Faith in Christ is the only thing needed for your justification. Stand firm here if you value your soul's peace. I see many, having no light, walking in darkness from confused notions as to what faith is. They hear that saving faith will work by love and produce holiness, and not finding all this at once in themselves, they think they have no faith at all. They forget that these things are the fruits of faith and not faith itself. To doubt if we have faith because we don't see them at once is like doubting if a tree is alive because it doesn't bear fruit the very day we plant it in the ground. I charge you to settle it firmly in your mind that in the matter of your forgiveness and justification there's only one thing required, and that is simple faith in Christ. I know that the natural heart dislikes this doctrine. It runs counter to our notions of religion. It leaves no room to boast. Man's idea is to come to Christ with a price in his hand. His consistency, his morality, his repentance, his goodness, to buy, as it were, his pardon and justification. The Spirit's teaching is quite different. It is, first of all, to believe. Whosoever believeth in him should not perish. John 3.16. Some say such doctrine cannot be right because it makes the way to heaven too easy. I fear that many of these people, if the truth be told, find it too hard. I believe, in reality, it is easier to give a fortune to build a cathedral like York Minster, or to go to the stake and be burned, than to thoroughly receive justification by faith without the deeds of the law, and to enter heaven as a sinner saved by grace. Some say this doctrine is foolishness and enthusiasm. I answer, that this is just what was said of it two thousand years ago, and it is as vain an objection now as it was then. The charge is not only untrue, but also a thousand facts can prove this doctrine to be from God. 
Certainly, no doctrine has produced such powerful effects in the world as the simple proclamation of free forgiveness through faith in Christ. This is the glorious doctrine that was the strength of the apostles when they went out to the Gentiles to preach a new religion. They were a few poor fishermen in a despised corner of the earth, but they turned the world upside down. They changed the face of the Roman Empire. They emptied the heathen temples of their worshippers and made the whole system of idolatry crumble away. And what was the weapon by which they did it all? It was free forgiveness through faith in Jesus Christ. This is the doctrine that brought light into Europe three hundred years ago at the time of the Blessed Reformation, and enabled one solitary monk, Martin Luther, to shake the whole church of Rome. Through his preaching and writing, the scales fell from men's eyes and the chains of their souls were loosened. And what was the lever that gave him his power? It was free forgiveness through faith in Jesus Christ. This is the doctrine that revived our own church two centuries ago when Whitefield, the Wesleys, Romaine, Berridge, and Venn broke the wretched spirit of slumber that had come over the land and roused men to think. Footnote George Whitefield, John and Charles Wesley, William Romaine, John Berridge, and John Venn were evangelists, authors, clergy, and hymnists who, through their preaching and writing, had a profound influence on the state of the church in both Great Britain and the American colonies. They began a mighty work with little likelihood of success. They were few in number and received only small encouragement from the rich and great. But they prospered. Why? Because they preached free forgiveness through faith in Christ. This is the doctrine that is the true strength of any church on earth today. It is not orders, endowments, liturgies, or learning that will keep a church alive. Let free forgiveness through Christ be faithfully proclaimed in her pulpits, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against her. Matthew 16:18. If it is buried or kept back, her candlestick will soon be taken away. Revelation 2:5. When the Saracens invaded the lands where Jerome, Athanasius, Cyprian, and Augustine once wrote and preached, they found bishops and liturgies, I am sure. But I fear they found no preaching of free forgiveness of sins, so they swept the churches of those lands clean away. They were a body without a vital principle. Therefore, they fell. Let us never forget that the brightest days of a church are those when Christ crucified is most exalted. The dens and caves of the earth, where the early Christians met to hear of the love of Jesus, had more glory and beauty in God's sight than ever did St. Peter's Basilica at Rome. The crudest barn today, where the true way of pardon is offered to sinners, is a far more honorable place than the Cathedral of Cologne or Milan. A church is only useful as far as she exalts free forgiveness through Christ. This doctrine, above all others, is the mightiest engine for pulling down the kingdom of Satan. The Greenlanders were unmoved as long as the Moravians told them of the creation and the fall of man, but when they heard of redeeming love, their frozen hearts melted like snow in spring. If you preach salvation by the sacraments, Exalt the church above Christ and keep back the doctrine of the atonement, 
The devil doesn't care. His goods are at peace. But if you preach a full Christ and a free pardon, then Satan will rage, because he knows he has just a short time. John Berridge said he went on preaching morality and nothing else until he found there was not a moral man in his parish. But when he changed his plan and began to preach the love of Christ to sinners, then there was a stirring of the dry bones and a mighty turning to God. This is the only doctrine that will ever bring peace to an uneasy conscience and rest to a troubled soul. A man may get by pretty well without it as long as he is asleep about his spiritual condition, but once he awakes from his slumber, nothing will ever calm him but the blood of atonement and the peace of Christ. How anyone can be a minister of religion without a firm grasp of this doctrine I never can understand. For myself, I can only say I would find my job a most painful one if I didn't have the message of free forgiveness to convey. It would be miserable work indeed to visit the sick and dying if I couldn't say, Behold the Lamb of God, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and thou shalt be saved. John 1 29, Acts 16 31. The right hand of a Christian minister is the doctrine of free forgiveness through faith in Christ. Give us this doctrine, and we have power. We will never despair of doing good to men's souls. Take away this doctrine, and we are as weak as water. We may read the prayers and go through a round of ceremony, but we are like Samson with his hair cut. Our strength is gone. Souls will not be helped by us, and good will not be done. I recommend that you give attention to the things I have been saying. I am not ashamed of free pardon through faith in Christ, no matter what some may say against the doctrine. I am not ashamed of it, for its fruits speak for themselves. It has done things that no other doctrine can do. It has effected moral changes that laws and punishments have failed to accomplish, that judges and policemen have labored for in vain, and that technical schools and secular knowledge have proved utterly powerless to produce. Just as the fiercest lunatics in Bethlehem Hospital became suddenly gentle when kindly treated, even so the worst and most hardened sinners have often become as little children when told of Jesus loving them and willing to forgive them. Footnote. Bethlehem Hospital was a notorious mental institution in London. I can well understand Paul ending his letter to the erring Galatians with that solemn burst of feeling, God forbid that I should glory, save in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. Galatians 6.14 The crown has indeed fallen from a Christian's head when he leaves the doctrine of justification by faith. You can now see that you should ask yourself if you have really received the truth that I have been dwelling on and know it by experience. Jesus and faith in Him is the only way to the Father. He who thinks to climb into paradise by some other road will find himself fearfully mistaken. No one can lay a foundation for an immortal soul other than that of which I have been feebly speaking. He who ventures here is safe. He who is off this rock has no stable ground at all. You should also seriously consider what kind of a ministry you are in the habit of attending, supposing you have a choice. You have reason to be careful. It's not all the same wherever you go, no matter what people may say. 
There are many places of worship by fear where you might look long and hard for Christ crucified but never find him. He is buried under outward ceremonies, thrust behind the baptismal receptacle, and lost sight of under the shadow of the church. Scripture They have taken away my Lord, and I know not where they have laid him. John 20, 13. Be careful where you settle yourself. Test all by this single question Is Jesus and free forgiveness proclaimed here? There may be comfortable pews. There may be good singing, there may be scholarly sermons, but if Christ's gospel is not the sun and center of the whole place, don't stay there. Instead, say with Isaac, Here is the wood and the fire, but where is the lamb? Genesis 22 7. You can be sure this is not the place for your soul. Listener, remember these things, and you will be wise. I have set before you the way of life. I have told you where pardon is to be found. Oh, be careful not to come short of this offer made to you of free forgiveness. Encouragement for those who wish to be forgiven. I am sure this book will be read and listened to by some who feel they are not yet forgiven souls. My heart's desire and prayer are that they may seek his pardon at once. And I would, with joy, Help them forward by showing them the kind of forgiveness offered to them and the glorious privileges within their reach. Listen to me then while I try to display to you the treasures of gospel forgiveness. I can't describe its fullness as I ought. Its riches are indeed unsearchable. Ephesians 3 8. But if you turn away from it, you will not be able to say in the day of judgment that you did not at all know what it was. First, consider that the forgiveness set before you is a great and broad forgiveness. Hear what the Prince of Peace himself declares All sins shall be forgiven unto the sons of men, and blasphemies wherewith soever they shall blaspheme. Mark 3 28. Though your sins be as scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they be red like crimson, they shall be as wool. Isaiah 1.18. Yes, even though your trespasses are more in number than the hairs of your head, the stars in heaven, the leaves of the forest, the blades of grass, or the grains of sand on the seashore, they can all be pardoned. As the waters of Noah's flood covered over and hid the tops of the highest hills, so can the blood of Jesus cover over and hide your greatest sins. Scripture the blood of Jesus Christ his Son cleanseth us from all sin. 1 John 1 7. Though to you they seem written with the point of a diamond, they can all be erased from the book of God's remembrance by that precious blood. Paul names a long list of abominations that the Corinthians had committed, and then says, Such were some of you, but ye are washed. 1 Corinthians 6 11. Furthermore, it is a full and complete forgiveness. It's not like David's pardon to Absalom, a permission to return home but not a full restoration to favor. 2 Samuel 14:24. It is not as some imagine, a mere letting off and letting alone. It is a pardon so complete that he who has it is counted as righteous as if he had never sinned at all. 
They are removed from him as far as the east is from the west. Psalm 103, 12. There remains no condemnation for him. The Father sees him joined to Christ and is well pleased. The Son sees him clothed with his own righteousness and says, Thou art all fair, my love, there is no spot in thee. Song of Solomon 4, 7. Blessed be God that it is so. I truly believe if the best of us all had only one blot left for himself to wipe out, he would miss eternal life. If the holiest child of Adam were wholly in heaven except for his little finger, and to get in depended on himself, I am sure he would never enter the kingdom. If Noah, Daniel, and Job had had only one day's sins to wash away, they would never have been saved. Praised be God that in the matter of our pardon there is nothing left for man to do. Jesus does it all, and man has only to hold out an empty hand and receive. Furthermore, it is a free and unconditional forgiveness. It's not burdened with an if, like Solomon's pardon to Adonijah, if he will show himself a worthy man. 1 Kings 1.52. Neither are you obliged to carry a price in your hand, or bring a sign with you to prove yourself deserving of mercy. Jesus requires just one sign, and that is that you should feel yourself a sinful, bad person. He invites you to buy wine and milk without money and without price, and he declares, Whosoever will, let him take the water of life freely. Isaiah 55, 1, Revelation 22, 17. Like David in the cave of Adullam, he receives every one that was in distress and every one that was in debt, and rejects none. 1 Samuel 22, 2. Are you a sinner? Do you want a Savior? Then come to Jesus just as you are, and your soul will live. It is an offered forgiveness. I have read of earthly kings who did not know how to show mercy. Henry VIII of England spared neither man nor woman. James V of Scotland would never show favor to a member of the Douglas family. The king of kings is not like them. He calls men to come to him and be pardoned. Scripture, Unto you, O men, I call, and my voice is to the sons of man. Proverbs 8, 4. Ho, every one that thirsteth, come ye to the waters. Isaiah 55, 1. If any man thirst, let him come unto me and drink. John 7, 37. Come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Matthew 11, 28. It ought to be a great comfort to you and me to hear of any pardon at all, but to hear Jesus himself inviting us, to see Jesus himself holding out his hand to us, the Savior seeking the sinner before the sinner seeks the Savior. This is encouragement and strong consolation indeed. It is a willing forgiveness. I have heard of pardons granted in reply to long pleas and petitions and wrung out by obstinate persistence. King Edward III of England would not spare the citizens of Calais until his own queen interceded for them on her knees. 
and they came to him with ropes around their necks. But Jesus is good and ready to forgive. Psalm 86, 5. He delighteth in mercy. Micah 7, 18. Judgment is his strange work. Isaiah 28, 21. He is not willing that any should perish. 2 Peter 3, 9. He would have all men to be saved and to come unto the knowledge of the truth. 1 Timothy 2, 4. He wept over unbelieving Jerusalem. Luke 19, 41. As I live, saith the Lord God, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but that the wicked turn from his way and live. Turn ye, turn ye from your evil ways, for why will ye die? Ezekiel 33, 11. Oh, you and I may come boldly to the throne of grace. He who sits there is far more willing and ready to give mercy than you and I are ready to receive it. Besides this, it is a tested forgiveness. Thousands and tens of thousands have sought pardon at the mercy seat of Christ, and not one has ever returned to say that he sought in vain. Sinners of every name and nation, sinners of every sort and description, have knocked at the door of the fold, and none have ever been refused admission. Zacchaeus the extortioner, Magdalene the harlot, Saul the persecutor, Peter the denier of his Lord, the Jews who crucified the Prince of Life, the idolatrous Athenians, the adulterous Corinthians, the uneducated Africans, the bloodthirsty New Zealanders, all have ventured their souls on Christ's promises of pardon, and none have ever found them to fail. Listener, if the way I set before you were a new and untraveled way, you might feel faint-hearted. But it is not so. It is an old path. It is a path worn by the feet of many pilgrims, and a path in which the footsteps are all one way. The treasury of Christ's mercies has never been found empty. The well of living waters has never proved dry. It is also a present forgiveness. All who believe in Jesus are at once justified from all things. Acts 13:39. The very day the younger son returned to his father's house, he was clothed with the best robe, had the ring put on his hand, and the shoes put on his feet. Luke 15. The very day Zacchaeus received Jesus, he heard those comforting words, this day is salvation come to this house. Luke 19, 9. The very day that David said, I have sinned against the Lord, Nathan told him, The Lord also hath put away thy sin. 2 Samuel 12, 13. The very day you first flee to Christ, your sins are all removed. Your pardon is not a thing far away, obtained only by hard work and after many years. It is near at hand. It is close to you, within your reach, all ready to be given. Believe, and that very moment it is your own. He that believeth on him is not condemned. John 3 18. It is not said, He shall not be, or will not be, but is not. From the time of his believing, condemnation is gone. 
He that believeth on the Son hath everlasting life. John 3.36. It is not said he shall have or will have, but he hath. It is his own as certain as if he were in heaven, though not so evidently so as to his own eyes. You mustn't think forgiveness will be nearer to a believer in the day of judgment than it was in the hour he first believed. His complete salvation from the power of sin is every year nearer and nearer to him, but as to his forgiveness and justification, it is a finished work from the very minute he first commits himself to Christ. Last and best of all, it is an everlasting forgiveness. It's not like Shimei's pardon, a pardon that may be revoked and taken away. 1 Kings 2 8 9. Once justified, you are justified forever. Once written down in the book of life, your name will never be blotted out. The sins of God's children are said to be cast into the depths of the sea. Micah 7 19. To be sought for and not found. Jeremiah 50 20. To be remembered no more. Jeremiah 31 34. And to be cast behind God's back. Isaiah 38 17. Some people imagine they may be justified one year and condemned another. They may be children of adoption at one time and strangers later. They may be heirs of the kingdom in the beginning of their days, but servants of the devil in their end. I cannot find this in the Bible. It seems to me to overturn the good news of the gospel altogether and to tear up its comforts by the roots. I believe the salvation Jesus offers is an everlasting salvation, and a pardon once sealed with his blood will never be reversed. I have set before you the nature of the forgiveness offered to you. I have told you just a little of it, for my words are weaker than my will. Half of it remains untold. The greatness of it is far more than any report of mine. But I think I've said enough to show you it is worth seeking, and I can wish you nothing better than that you may strive to make it your own. Is it nothing to look forward to death without fear, and to judgment without doubt, and to eternity without a sinking heart? Do you call it nothing to feel the world slipping from your grasp, and to see the grave getting ready for you, and the valley of the shadow of death opening before your eyes, and yet not be afraid? Do you call it nothing to be able to think of the great day of account, the throne, the books, the judge, the assembled worlds, the revealing of secrets, the final sentence, and yet to feel, I am safe? This is the right and the privilege of a forgiven soul. This person is on a rock. When the rain of God's wrath descends and the floods come and the winds blow, his feet will not slide. His habitation is sure. This person is in an ark. When the last fiery deluge is sweeping over all things on the surface of the earth, it will not come near him. He will be caught up and carried securely above it all. This person is in a hiding place. When God rises to judge terribly the earth, and men are calling for rocks and mountains to fall on them and cover them, the everlasting arms will be thrown around him, and the storm will pass over his head. He shall abide under the shadow of the Almighty. Psalm 91, 1. This person is in a city of refuge. 
The accuser of the brethren can lay no charge against him. The law cannot condemn him. There is a wall between him and the avenger of blood. The enemies of his soul cannot hurt him. He is in a secure sanctuary. This person is rich. He has treasure in heaven that cannot be affected by worldly changes. He need not envy the richest merchants and bankers. He has treasure that will endure when dollars and cents are worthless things. He can say like the Spanish ambassador when shown the treasury at Venice, My master's treasury has not bottom. He has Christ. This person is insured. He is ready for anything that may happen. Nothing can harm him. Banks may break and governments may be overthrown. Famine and pestilence may rage around him. Sickness and sorrow may visit his own fireside, but still he is ready for all, ready for health, ready for disease, ready for tears, ready for joy, ready for poverty, ready for plenty, ready for life, ready for death. He has Christ. He is a pardoned soul. Blessed is he whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Psalm 32, 1. How will you escape if you neglect so great a salvation? Hebrews 2, 3. There is no reason not to grab it at once and say, Pardon me, even me also, O my Savior. Genesis 27, 38. What would you have if the way I have set before you does not satisfy you? Come while the door is open. Ask, and you will receive. Signs of having found forgiveness. I dare not leave out this point. Too many people presume they are forgiven, but have no evidence to show it. Many who are plainly on the way to heaven, though they may not see it themselves, do not think it possible that they are forgiven. I would gladly raise hope in some and self inquiry in others, and to do this, let me tell you the leading signs of a forgiven soul. Forgiven souls hate sin. They can enter fully into the words of our communion service, The remembrance of sin is grievous unto them, and the burden of it is intolerable. It is the serpent that bit them. How should they not shrink from it with horror? It is the poison that brought them to the brink of eternal death. How should they not loathe it with a godly disgust? It is the Egyptian enemy that kept them in hard bondage. How should not the very memory of it be bitter to their hearts? It is the disease of which they carry the marks and scars on them and from which they barely recovered. Rightly they dread it, flee from it, and long to be delivered altogether from its power. Remember how the woman in Simon's house wept over the feet of Jesus. Luke 7:38. Remember how the Ephesians publicly burned their wicked books. Acts 19, 19. Remember how Paul mourned over his youthful transgressions, I am not meet to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. 1 Corinthians 15, 9. Listener, if you and sin are friends, then you and God are not yet reconciled. You are not fit for heaven, for one main part of heaven's excellence is the absence of all sin. Forgiven souls love Christ. This is the one thing they can say, 
if they dare say nothing else. They do love Christ. His person, his office, his work, his name, his cross, his blood, his words, his example, his day, his ordinances, all are precious to forgiven souls. The ministry that exalts him most is that which they enjoy most. The book that is most full of him is most pleasant to their minds. The people on earth they feel most drawn to are those in whom they see something of Christ. His name is as ointment poured forth, and comes with a peculiar sweetness to their ears. Song of Solomon 1 3. They would tell you they cannot help feeling as they do. He is their Redeemer, their Shepherd, their Physician, their King, their Strong Deliverer, their Gracious Guide, their Hope, their Joy, their All. Were it not for Him, they would be, of all men, most miserable. 1 Corinthians 15 19. They would as soon consent that you should take the sun out of the sky as take Christ out of their religion. Those people who talk of the Lord, the Almighty, the Deity, and so forth, but do not have a word to say about Christ, are in anything but a right state of mind. What does the Scripture say? He that honoureth not the Son, honoureth not the Father which hath sent him. John 5.23 if any man love not the Lord Jesus Christ, let him be anathema. 1 Corinthians 16.22 Forgiven souls are humble. They cannot forget that they owe all they have and hope for to free grace, and this keeps them humble. They are brands plucked from the fire, debtors who could not pay for themselves captives who would have remained in prison forever except for undeserved mercy, wandering sheep who were ready to perish when the shepherd found them. What right, then, have they to be proud? I don't deny that there are proud saints, but this I do say, they are of all God's creatures the most inconsistent, and of all God's children the most likely to stumble and pierce themselves with many sorrows. 1 Timothy 6 10. Forgiveness more often produces the spirit of Jacob, I am not worthy of the least of all the mercies and of all the truth which thou hast showed unto thy servant. Genesis 32.10. And of Hezekiah, I shall go softly all my years. Isaiah 38.15. And of the Apostle Paul, I am less than the least of all saints, the chief of sinners. Ephesians 3.8. 1 Timothy 1.15. Listener, when you and I have nothing we can call our own except sin and weakness, there is surely no garment that suits us so well as humility. Forgiven souls are holy. Their highest desire is to please Him who has saved them, to do His will, and to glorify Him in body and in spirit, which are His. What shall I render unto the Lord for all his benefits is a leading principle in a pardoned heart. Psalm 116.12. It was the remembrance of Jesus showing mercy that made Paul labor so abundantly and do good so untiringly. It was a sense of pardon that made Zacchaeus say, The half of my goods I give to the poor, and if I have taken anything from any man by false accusation, I restore him fourfold. 
Luke 19, 8. If you point out to me a believer who is in a carnal, lazy state of soul, I reply in the words of Peter, He has forgotten that he was purged from his old sins. 2 Peter 1, 9. But if you show me a man deliberately living an unholy and licentious life, yet boasting that his sins are forgiven, I answer that he is under a ruinous delusion and is not forgiven at all. I wouldn't believe he is forgiven even if an angel from heaven affirmed it, and I charge you not to believe it either. Pardon of sin and love of sin are like oil and water. They will never go together. All that are washed in the blood of Christ are also sanctified by the Spirit of Christ. Forgiven souls are forgiving. They do as they have had done for them. They overlook the offenses of their brothers. They attempt to walk in love as Christ loved them and gave Himself for them. Ephesians 5.25 They remember how God for Christ's sake forgave them and endeavor to do the same toward their fellow creatures. Ephesians 4.32 He has forgiven them millions. Will they not forgive a few pennies? No doubt, in this, as in everything else, they come short, but this is their desire and their aim. A spiteful, quarrelsome Christian is a scandal to his profession. It's very hard to believe that such a person has ever sat at the foot of the cross, has ever considered how he is praying against himself every time he uses the Lord's Prayer, and saying, as it were, Father, do not forgive me my trespasses at all. But it is still harder to understand what this person would do in heaven if he got there. All ideas of heaven that do not include forgiveness are castles in the air and vain imaginations. Forgiveness is the way by which every saved soul enters heaven. Forgiveness is the only title by which he remains in heaven. Forgiveness is the eternal subject of song with all the redeemed who inhabit heaven. Certainly, an unforgiving soul in heaven would find his heart completely out of tune. We know nothing of Christ's love to us except the name of it if we don't love our brothers. I lay these things before you. I know there is great diversity in the degree of our attainments in grace, and that saving faith in Christ is consistent with many imperfections. But I still believe that the marks I have just been naming will generally be found, more or less, in all forgiven souls. These signs should cause many to examine their hearts. I must be blunt. I fear there are thousands of people called Christians who know nothing of these marks. They are baptized. They attend their church. They would not on any account be thought of as infidels. But as to true repentance and saving faith, union with Christ and sanctification of the Spirit, they are names and words of which they know nothing at all. Now, if those people read or listened to this book, it will probably either alarm them or make them very angry. If it makes them angry, I'll be sorry. If it alarms them, I will be glad. I want to alarm them. I want to awaken them from their present state. I want them to take in the great fact that they are not yet forgiven, they do not have peace with God, and are on the highway to destruction. I must say this, 
for I see no alternative. It seems neither Christian faithfulness nor Christian charity to keep it back. I see certain marks of pardoned souls laid down in Scripture. I see an utter lack of these marks in many men and women around me. How then can I avoid the conclusion that they are not yet forgiven? And how can I do the work of a faithful watchman if I don't write it down plainly? What's the use of crying, Peace, peace, when there is no peace? Where is the honesty in acting the part of a lying physician and telling people there is no danger when, in reality, they are quickly drawing near to eternal death? Certainly, the blood of souls would be required at my hands if I wrote to you anything less than the truth. If the trumpet give an uncertain sound, who shall prepare himself to the battle? 1 Corinthians 14, 8. Examine yourselves before this subject is forgotten. Consider what sort your religion is. Test it by the signs I have just set before you. I have tried to make them as broad and general as I can, for fear of causing any heart to be sad that God has not made sad. If you know anything of them, though it is just a little, I am thankful, and I plead with you to go forward. But if you know nothing of them in your own experience, let me say in all affection, I stand in doubt of you. I tremble for your soul. And now, before I conclude, let me ask a vital question to everyone who reads or listens to this book. It will be short and plain, but it is all important. Are you forgiven? I have told you all I can about forgiveness. Your need of forgiveness, the way of forgiveness, the encouragements to seek forgiveness, the marks of having found it, all have been placed before you. Bring the whole subject before your own heart and ask yourself, Am I forgiven? Either I am or I am not. Which of the two is it? You believe perhaps there is forgiveness of sins. You believe that Christ died for sinners and that He offers a pardon to the most ungodly. But are you forgiven yourself? Have you yourself laid hold on Christ by faith and found peace through His blood? What profit is there to you in forgiveness except you get the benefit of it? What does it profit the shipwrecked sailor to have a lifeboat nearby if he sticks by the wreck and does not jump in and escape? What does it help the sick man that the doctor offers him a medicine if he only looks at it and doesn't swallow it? Unless you lay hold of your own soul, you will be as surely lost as if there was no forgiveness at all. If your sins are ever to be forgiven, it must be now, now in this life. If ever in the life to come, it must be now in this world if they are to be found blotted out when Jesus comes again. There must be actual business between you and Christ. Your sins must be laid on Him by faith. His righteousness must be laid on you. His blood must be applied to your conscience, or else your sins will meet you in the day of judgment and sink you into hell. Oh, how can you treat this so lightly when such important things are at stake? How can you be content to leave it uncertain if you are forgiven? That a man can make his will, ensure his life, give instructions about his funeral, and yet leave his soul's affairs in uncertainty is an astonishing thing indeed. Let me next give a serious warning to everyone who reads or listens to this book and knows in his conscience he is not forgiven. 
Your soul is in awful danger. You may die this year, and if you die as you are, you will be lost forever. If you die without pardon, without pardon you will rise again at the last day. There is a sword over your head that hangs by a single hair. There is just a step between you and death. I wonder how you can sleep quietly in your bed. You are not yet forgiven. Then what have you gained by your religion? You go to church, you have a Bible, you have a prayer book, and perhaps a hymn book. You hear sermons, you join in services, possibly you go to the Lord's table. But what have you really got after all? Any hope? Any peace? Any joy? Any comfort? Nothing. Literally nothing. You have nothing except mere worldly things if you are not a pardoned soul. You are not yet forgiven, but you trust God will be merciful. But why should He be merciful if you won't seek Him in His own appointed way? Without doubt, He is merciful, wonderfully merciful, to all who come to Him in the name of Jesus. But if you choose to despise His directions and make a road to heaven of your own, you will find at your expense that there is no mercy for you. You are not yet forgiven, but you hope you will be some day. I cannot stand that expression. It is like thrusting off the hand of conscience and seizing it by the throat to stop its voice. Why are you more likely to seek forgiveness at a future time? Why should you not seek it now? Now is the time for gathering the bread of life. Exodus 16:26. The day of the Lord is quickly approaching, and then no man can work. John 9, 4. The seventh trumpet will soon sound. The kingdoms of this world will soon become the kingdoms of our God and of His Christ. Revelation 11:15. Woe to the house found without the scarlet line. Joshua 2:18. And without the mark of blood upon the door. Exodus 12:13. You may not feel your need of forgiveness now, but a time may come when you will want it. The Lord in mercy grant that it will not then be too late. Next, let me give an earnest invitation to all who read or listen to this book and desire forgiveness. I don't know what you are or what you may have been in the past, but I say boldly, come to Christ by faith and you will have a pardon. High or low, rich or poor, young men and women, old men and children, you cannot be worse than Manasseh and Paul before conversion. Second Chronicles 33, Acts 8, 3, or than David and Peter after conversion. Come all of you to Christ and you will be freely forgiven. Don't think for a moment that you have some great thing to do before you come to Christ. Such an idea is of the earth, worldly. The gospel calls you to come just as you are. Man's idea is to make his peace with God by repentance and then come to Christ later. The gospel way is to receive peace from Christ first of all, to begin with him. Man's idea is to reform himself, turn over a new leaf, and work his way up to reconciliation and friendship with God. The gospel way is first to be friends with God through Christ, and then to work. Man's idea is to toil up the hill and find life at the top. The gospel way is first to live by faith in Christ and then do His will. 
Every one of you judge which is true Christianity, which is the good news, which are the glad tidings, first the fruit of the Spirit, and then peace, or first peace, and then the fruit of the Spirit, first sanctification, and then pardon, or first pardon, and then sanctification, first service, and then life, or first life, and then service. Your own heart knows the answer. Come then, willing to receive, not thinking how much you can bring. Come, willing to take what Christ offers, not imagining you can give anything in return. Come with your sins and no other qualification but a hearty desire for pardon, and as sure as the Bible is true, you will be saved. You may tell me you're not worthy, you're not good enough, you're not elect. I answer, you are a sinner, and you want to be saved. What more do you need? You are one of those whom Jesus came to save. Come to him, and you will have life. Take words with you, and he will hear you graciously. Tell him all your soul's needs, and I know he will give you care. Tell him you have heard he receives sinners, and that you are one. Luke 15, 2. Tell him you have heard he has the keys of life in his hand, and ask him to let you in. Tell him you come in dependence on his own promises, and ask him to fulfill his word, and do as he has said. Do this in simplicity and sincerity, and I promise you will not ask in vain. Do this, and you will find him faithful and just to forgive your sins and to cleanse you from all unrighteousness. 1 John 1 9. Last, let me give a word of exhortation to all forgiven souls. You are forgiven. Then know the full extent of your privileges and learn to rejoice in the Lord. You and I are great sinners, but we have a great Savior. You and I have sinned sins that are past man's knowledge, but we have the love of Christ, which passes knowledge, to rest on. You and I feel our hearts are a bubbling fountain of evil, but we have another fountain of greater power. Christ's blood, to which we may go daily. You and I have mighty enemies to contend with, but the captain of our salvation is mightier still, and is always with us. Why should our hearts be troubled? Why should we be worried and cast down? O men of little faith that we are, why do we doubt? Let us strive every year to grow in grace and in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. It is sad to be content with a little Christianity. In fact, it is honorable to covet the best gifts. 1 Corinthians 12:31. We should not be satisfied with the same kind of hearing, reading, and praying that satisfied us in years gone by. We ought to labor every year to throw more heart and reality into everything we do in our religion, to love Christ more intensely, to abhor evil more thoroughly, to cling to what is good more closely, Romans 12, 9, to watch even our least ways more narrowly, to declare very plainly that we seek a country, Hebrews 11, 14, and to put on the Lord Jesus Christ and be clothed with Him in every place and company, Romans 13, 14. To see more, to feel more, to know more, to do more, to pray more, These ought to be our aims and desires every year we begin. Truly, 
there is room for improvement in us all. Let us try to do good to the souls of others more than we have done in the past. It would be regrettable to be swallowed up in our own spiritual concerns and consumed with our own spiritual ailments and never think of others. We forget that there is such a thing as religious selfishness. Count it a sorrowful thing to go to heaven alone. Try to bring companions with you. We should never forget that every man, woman, and child around us will soon be either in heaven or hell. Let us say to others, as Moses did to Jethro, Come thou with us, and we will do thee good. Numbers 10.29 It is a true saying, He that watereth shall be watered also himself. Proverbs 11.25 Selfish Christians have little idea of what they are missing. But above all, let us learn to live the life of faith in Jesus more than we have before. To always be found by the fountain side, to always be eating Christ's body and drinking Christ's blood by faith, to always have before our minds Christ dying for our sins, Christ rising again for our justification, Christ interceding for us at God's right hand, Christ soon coming again to gather us to Himself. These are the marks that we should have continually before our eyes. We may fall short, but let us aim high. Let us walk in the full light of the Son of Righteousness, and then our graces will grow. Don't be like trees on a north wall, weak, unfruitful, and cold. Instead, let us strive to be like the sunflower and follow the great fountain of light wherever he goes and see him with open face. Oh, to have an eye that more quickly discerns his leadings and an ear more ready to hear his voice. Let us say to everything in the world that interferes between ourselves and Jesus, stand aside. Let us dread allowing ourselves to have even the smallest evil habits, lest without our notice they rise up like a mist and hide him from our eyes. In his light alone will we see light and feel warmth, and, separate from him, we will find the world a dark and cold wilderness. We should call to mind the request of the Athenian philosopher Diogenes when Alexander, the mightiest monarch on earth, asked him what he desired most. I have, said he, but one request to make, and that is that you would stand aside to stop blocking my son. Let this be the spirit in which you and I are found continually. Let us think lightly of the world's gifts. Let us sit calmly under its concerns. Let us care for nothing if only we may always see the King's face and if we may always abide in Christ. And now, with every kind and Christian wish for your soul's happiness, I commend you to the only wise God, our Saviour. He is able to keep you from falling and to present you faultless before the presence of His glory with exceeding joy. Jude, verses 24 to 25.